so I'm so excited to be with you again this Sunday as we look at uh, the Gospel of uh, John. Uh, as we, as we um, approach this Gospel, uh, let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day and another opportunity to gather here. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and the call on us together to be here today. We pray, God, that your spirit would open our ears, open our hearts to receive and to hear your voice. May we hear what you have for us today. And may these words, these ancient words of scripture, come alive again to us. May they speak to us. May you speak to us through them. And may we be inspired in our journey of faith together. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So you're getting used to seeing these now. Uh, this is the, the last one, the Gospel of John. This is the uh, earliest reliably dated gospel book called the Abba Garima Three in Ethi- Ethiopian. And this is uh, different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and this is a picture of John. They're still homely, yeah. I mean, you know, back in the third, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century, art was not that, you know, not quite that advanced, especially in painting. So, had to be a few centuries before it got any better. But uh, this is uh, Saint John. So here is our outline for today. Everyone should have one of these. Uh, yeah, we should have enough to go around. If you don't have one of these, give a shout out, and we can get you one. So our outline today. We want to talk about John's relationship to the Synoptic Gospels. We're going to get an outline of John, talk through some major motifs of this Gospel, focus on uh, the I am statements. Something that's really important throughout the Gospel of John is those I am statements. Then we also will talk about some incipient Trinitarianism, which is particularly important. emphasized in this gospel. Then we'll move on to focusing in on one story, the raising of Lazarus, which uh, by no design of my own actually uh, appears in the sermon today. I'm not preaching it, so I didn't know that, but but Dave's talking about this as well today. So it'll, it'll be good preparation for the sermon for later. We come back to this chart, which we've been looking at for the last few weeks, but we focus in on this bottom line, since this is the last, uh, last gospel we've got to look at this week, John is most likely a Jew, maybe living in Ephesus or Syria. We're not quite sure. Uh, there's a lot of question marks around John, um, and that may become a little clearer today. Um, the audience, everyone else, we can say, okay, Mark was written to Gentiles, Matthew to Jews, Luke to Gentiles. John is really hard to pin down really hard to pin down exactly who John is speaking to. Um, and John, again, rem- we remember that these attributions, the reason these are in quotation marks is because none of these uh, people say, hey, my name is Matthew, my name is Mark, my name is, they don't say that, hey, and I wrote this gospel. That wasn't the style, that wasn't what they did back then. And John doesn't do that either. John, right? Quote, unquote, John. We don't know who he is. Could he be one of the disciples of Jesus? That is what tradition says. In the gospel, we don't get the, the name John. We get the beloved disciple, right? Um, John talks about himself, it, whoever this author is, talks about himself circuitously. So we're not really sure who he is. And we're not really sure particularly about the audience. Um, sometimes it appears as though he explains certain Jewish customs to a non-Jewish audience. But it could be he's talking to Jews in the diaspora who may not know those things. So it's, it's very unclear. Um, and the dating, this is, a, this is the widest of ranges, right? Anywhere from 80 to 110. So there's a 30-year uh, time span in which this uh, gospel could have been written, most likely between 100 and 110. So looking at the, comparing the rest of the gospels, John is considered by most to be the last of the gospel writers. But what is the relationship then with the synoptics, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke. What is the relationship between John and the others? 
from Francis Watson in his book, Fourfold Gospel, we read this, that John is the fourth gospel because of its difference from the other three. While it is true that all four gospels are distinctive and tell the same story in different ways, the distance separating John from the others is considerable. Over against this text... Matthew, Mark, and Luke form a coherent group of, quote, synoptic gospels. The fourfold gospel has a three plus one structure. And continuing, um, this is actually from Blomberg, and he says, one of the reasons John seems so different is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar to each other, which we know, we've studied them the last uh, few weeks. And John is largely independent of the synoptics. We can't figure out how they may be related. Did John have copies of these? Did he hear them? Did he, what was the relationship between them? We don't know. Did he just have access to the actual historical events or did he hear the stories and so there's some relationship and echoes between the synoptics and John? That's probably the case. But did John actually have a copy of the other synoptic gospels? Probably not. If he did, he didn't use them as a base text like the other gospel writers did. Um, what I, uh, we don't actually get it here, but there's in the same passage here, um, Blomberg highlights that um, because these three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are so similar, um, it's, and, and Watson's as well. It is really a three plus one structure. And what should, um, we are often amazed, wow, John is so very different from the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But what should really amaze us is that there aren't four very different gospels, right? Um, that there is this interrelationship. And now something that can also help us as we move forward into the gospel of John is to realize that um, there, Jesus did so many other things um, that these these books. Oh, he actually does go to here. Uh, that the, the gospels could have all been very different, as John is from the synoptics. So, and we'll come back to this verse a little later. Very good. And if you have the handout, the reason that that Pentateuch with Targum Ankalos, I I reused a slide from before and copied and pasted over it. And since it's in black, I didn't know it was there. So apologize for that little uh, typo there in your handout. doesn't appear here. I mean, it's there, but you just don't see it. Anyhow. So uh, again, coming back to the relationship with the synoptics. These, this is the material shared with the, all the Gospels, right? Um, there, is, there is focus on attention to the ministry of John the Baptist there's discussion of Jesus' public activity beginning in Galilee. Uh, then you've got miracle stories. Feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water. Jesus gives sight to a blind man, raises a dead person to life, and heals a paralytic. These appear in both the synoptics and in the Gospel of John. And there's also focus on Sabbath controversies with the Jews. Jesus is... From that seems to be in the wrong place. Maybe not. Jesus' friendships with Mary and Martha and uh, numerous details surrounding the passion. Now, moving on to material that is central to the synoptics but not present at all in John, this is where it starts to get a little more interesting. We've got the baptism of Jesus. Really? We're not going to... John mentions it, but he never actually narrates it. He says, oh yeah, it happened. But he never says, and that you know, he doesn't give the whole the whole story, the calling of the disciples, exorcisms. There's not a single exorcism in the Gospel of John. I don't know why that is, but just they're not there. We don't get a transfiguration story. We don't get any parables, right? We've been talking about parables for weeks. All these parables, Luke is full of them, right? There's all there's forty different parables between the synoptic Gospels, but for John, there's none. And then there, uh, when we get to the Last Supper, which we, we know that they're having a meal together, but Jesus doesn't say, this is my body broken for you. Here's the cup of salvation. Jesus doesn't go there. What does he do instead in John? 
washing of the feet, right? We only get the washing of the feet in John, but John doesn't mention the, the giving of the Eucharist, communion, right? The institution of the Last Supper is not present at all in the Gospel of John. Yep. Right? Isn't that funny? Yeah, I know. You would think if you if you sat back and thought, okay, John, what John is like the, you know, he's he's the out there guy, right? If I had to put him into this last century, I'd say he's kind of a hippie. Like he's like, ooh, what is he thinking in some of this stuff, right? And Transfiguration fits right in with my idea of who John is and what kind of stuff he writes, but he doesn't go there. So, what does John have? What are some things that John has um, that? The synoptics do not at all. What material is completely unique to John? We start with the prologue, which we'll come to in just a few moments here, focusing in on this, emphasizing the pre-existence of Christ as the logos or logos. You have discussion of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about Luke last week. Luke emphasizes the Holy Spirit more than any other of the synoptic gospels. But then John comes in, and he uses this word nobody else uses, talking about the Holy Spirit as parakletos, which is the Greek word for comforter, or paraclete. We even use the word sometimes in English, paraclete. comes from John. We've got that first miracle story, turning water into wine. doesn't appear anywhere else. But John thought it important enough to include. You have the raising of Lazarus. You also have this, this strange convention of Jesus speaking in long conversations, right? Any of the other Gospels, Jesus mostly talks to the crowds, talks to the disciples. There's some interaction one-on-one, but for the most part, it's talking to crowds, talking to the groups. But here, there are two whole chapters, right? Uh, Jesus speaking into Nicodemus, majority of chapter 3. Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, a majority of chapter 4. This is the longest conversation, this chapter 4 here, the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in any of the Gospels that we have recorded. Um, Why is that? I don't know. We've already talked about uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We have the high priestly prayer, this beautiful, beautiful prayer in John 17, where Jesus prays to God the Father, praying for the unity of, of the church, unity of the the disciples. And then you have some resurrection appearance, particularly the resurrection appearance to Doubting Thomas. This is where we get it. So let's move on to the big outline. We already talked about this prologue, so we have a little prologue at the beginning, a little epilogue at the end, and then we can really separate the the book into two major parts. The first part, some folks will call the book of signs. And the second will, is the book of glory. Now, the book of signs um, does have a lot of signs, right? Miracle stories. Uh, and then this kind of moves us towards, um, towards the passion, right? So it has a similar structure to Mark. Remember, and I wasn't here for Ben's, Ben's class, right? Uh, but I, I, from what I know, he's talked about, right? So that Mark is really... Two halves. The first half is all about, you know, the early, the, the ministry of Jesus. It's kind of the introduction or the, the preface to the passion. And then the second half is all passion. This kind of has a similar structure. This is all focused on ministry, and this is what leads us into the passion. It's not all passion, but like Mark, like Mark is, the second half is really all passion. And, um, but, but John has a similar two-part structure. Uh, we're not going to go through this whole thing. Well, in, in broad strokes, um, you've got, oops, you've got, again, introductory testimony with this prologue. We've got signs and discourses, water into wine, temple cleansing. Right here at the very beginning, you get the temple cleansing, right? That's something unique in John. And the other, the synoptics say that this is during the last week of Jesus' life. John's a little different here. We have that conversation with Nicodemus. We talked about that. Conversation with the Samaritan woman. Some healing stories. Uh, this is a focus, a big focus on Jewish festivals. And this is why we're, this is one of those, in the category of, is, is John a Jew or a Gentile? What is, 
This is in the Jewish category, right? He's firmly rooted in Judaism, um, but there's some things that he says that don't quite add up, right? That don't quite align with the historical sources. So that's why scholars say we're not sure about this guy. There's so many question marks. Uh, Good shepherd, the true tabernacles, Jesus' resurrection and the life. And then we move into testimony of death and resurrection, anointing, which is, I think this is a passage, uh, our passage for today, uh, for today's sermon, the anointing in Bethany, right, which is part of the testimony of death and resurrection, particularly actions preparing for death. Then there's teachings preparing for death, the events surrounding the death itself, and then there's some concluding testimony. So the prologue of John, I want you to open up your Bibles to the prologue of John. John chapter 1. Do we have Bibles there on the tables? Maybe you have Bibles on your phones. Where are the Bibles? Here we go. That's it? Only 15? You should come back to my office. <laughs> so, I wanted, I'm not going to read all of this, but I want us to listen to a little bit of this. And we've heard this many, many times before. But I want us to focus on the word, word, which, me, which in the Greek is logos or logos, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. Without him, not not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. The life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. We're going to skip ahead a little. Well, let's go actually, let's jump all the way down to 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist that is, testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. What? He was before me, but you're older than him. So you're before him, right? From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who was close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So where do we start in the Gospel of John? Mark Mark starts with a baptism, which we don't get fully here. Luke and Matthew start with, the infancy narratives, the birth of Jesus. But what does John do? This is audience participation. What do we got? The, begin, the beginning of what? The beginning. Not just the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, but the, the very beginning. What beginning? In the beginning was the word. What? What's that? Why don't you just say in the beginning was Jesus? What's this about? More mystery. So John goes to the beginning, even really before it. And that's what that one line, that uh, verse 15, that um, when John testifies, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. This is one of those major emphases in the Gospel of John is that Jesus existed prior to the incarnation, right? The very, even before creation, there's this idea that Jesus exists. How does he exist? In what form does he exist? Um, logos is a Greek ph- philosophical idea um, that John likes a lot and so uses it and says, you know that thing that's in the Greek philosophy? Well, guess what? They thought they knew, but they didn't really know. They thought it was just this, you know, atheistic, I'll say, quote unquote, using today's terms. They thought it was some godless logos. Well, guess what? It wasn't. This pre-existent being, this thing before all other things, is the one and only Jesus. So John co-ops this, this Greek idea and says, this is, this is um, Jesus. 
And so we could say this is a pre-incarnational Christ that we're talking about before Jesus takes on flesh. Um, some also could argue for an eternal incarnation, right? Is the incarnation the first moment? And is time, you know, we think of time as very linear, but to God, time is time is something that God created. So is it's a little more to use a Doctor Who term is a little more timey wimey than that. I don't know. <clears throat> and then we have this great. Verse in 14, Kai halagas sarks agenito kai eskenose. And the word flesh became and tabernacled. Tabernacled or dwelt among us, right? The idea that Jesus sets up his tent among us, right? There's another way to translate this very word, eskenosen. Um, this word refers to the tabernacle. Right, it's the same word used in the the Septuagint as that word, that tabernacle that the Israelites would carry around with God uh, for worship of God and for God's d- d- dwelling, right, in the wilderness. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He set up his tent, his tabernacle. Right here with us. And this is one of the oldest uh, known icons of uh, Christ Pantocrator uh, from St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt. Uh, And we see here this halo uh, represents the divinity of Christ. And you see something's going on here. We're talking about faces and art and, you know, I'm not going to say if this is a homely Jesus or not, but something's really weird. Right? Because if you look at this half of the face, it doesn't quite match up to this. And this is because, you'll see this a lot in icons, because the iconographer, the the one who painted this, said, well, there's two natures of Christ. And we didn't see it, but we can imagine that this there is a there is a divine and there is a human nature of Christ. So this is the word becoming flesh, the divine taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Okay. This is something um, that I found pretty interesting as I was reading through John these last few weeks. Um, there's, we've, we've already established this, uh, you know, word became flesh. But then we also, as we read through, especially in the English, we read through and we see that there are um, other mentions of words and scripture. And it starts to, there's this theme throughout the whole book. And I want to highlight just a few other verses that I thought were of, uh, of interest. Jesus is talking to the Jews. And in, in John's gospel, the Jews are the bad guys. The Israelites, those are good guys. The Jews, that's the bad guys. So Jesus is talking to the bad guy. For John, for John. We're not, saying, we're not trying to vilify these people. We're just saying for John, Jews, Jews mean bad guys. Um, those who have rejected Jesus as the truth, those who do not believe in Jesus as Lord. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures, the graphos, right? Uh, This is like graph, right? Um, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that it is they that testify on my behalf. So you're looking at this book. You're looking at these words here, but you've got the word right here. That's one of my favorite verses from the whole of the gospel. It just blows my, blows my mind every time I get to it. But then, oh, I love this. A chapter later. chapter later, there's this, Jesus is giving some very hard teachings to the disciples, all the students, not just the apostles, right? All of his students and the people who are following him. And then um, some people start to leave. And say, it's too hard. I can't follow you anymore. I can't do that. That thing that you you said, that thing you want us to do, I can't do it. I'm gone. And they leave. And then Jesus turns to the rest of the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? I mean, if you want to go, go. There's the door, right? Go. But then Peter says, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, this is not the word logos. This is a different word for word in the Greek. I don't know why they have two, but this is kind of related to the word rhyme. Um, you have the remata zoes aonia. You have the words of eternal life. And then, another few chapters later, we could do this through the whole gospel. I'm just picking out a few, right? Um, Jesus said again to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And this is Lagoi, Lago, um, which is back to the word from chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And even though there are different words being used in the Greek, um, even here, right? We think this word's word, this word words, how do I say this? Um, refers back to logos, like in chapter 1. It doesn't, but that's okay. I think that's okay. Because as we've talked about throughout this class, yes, it's helpful to, to, to read those commentaries that may talk about the Greek and the Hebrew, but the Spirit is still speaking. And we believe that the Spirit still speaks in whatever language scripture we are reading, right? The Muslims say, oh, it's only in Arabic. The Quran in Arabic is the only true Quran. We don't believe that the Greek and the Hebrew is the only Bible. Whatever language it comes into, it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit. So even though there's some differences here, that doesn't mean that we can say, oh, well, now I need to learn Greek because I'm not reading the real Bible. That's not it, right? But there's something, there's still this, even though the Greek is using different words, in the English, I still think there's a lot of value to seeing how, are, how is the word word being used? Words and scriptures throughout the whole gospel. There is a through line. I mean, there's probably a hundred mentions of these words um, throughout that are worth looking at. And then we get this, um, another through line. So back in um, Exodus 3, um, when God is speaking with Moses, right? There's this great point at which uh, Moses says, well, if I'll do all these things, sure. But when I go and talk to, to my fellow Jews, the fellow Israelites, they're going to say, well, who is it that sent me? And what am I supposed to tell them? What's your name? And, uh, and at one point, so there's, he kind of doesn't give the answer, and then he kind of gives an answer. Um, at one point, he kind of uses Yahweh, right? The divine name. But before that, he says, um, And God said to Moses, I am. Ego Amy. Okay, well, why is that? Okay, what's the big deal? John loves this verse. He loves this idea. He builds most of his gospel around this verse. In the Greek, right, the Septuagint, remember, we talked about in December, the Septuagint is the, tr the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, right? And John obviously knows this and loves this because... He emphasizes and, and tells his story around Jesus saying this again and again and again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And every time he says, I am, it's ego amy. Now you may say, but all he's saying is I am, right? That just, like, I say I am, and that doesn't mean I'm, I'm claimed to be God. Jesus does it a lot more than, we'll look at a few more in a moment that really emphasize that God, Jesus is claiming some affinity with God in these statements. These are subversive statements, right? So I am the light of the world. I am the gate, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Ooh, but open up to, open up to chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 8 in your Bibles. John chapter 8. Again, Jesus is talking to the Jews for, for John. These are the bad guys, those who do not believe. And there's this big controversy, and 
and they're really pushing him. Who are you? Why are you doing these things? And we don't, we don't believe you're legitimate. And then they're saying, we've got Abraham as our father. Who, you're saying God is your father? But what, like, there's the, all this tension back and forth. And then Jesus um, says... We're going to skip to, we're going to go to verse 56. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I, I am. Is is Jesus speaking street Greek here? What? Why didn't he say before Abraham was I? Before Abraham was I was, right? No. Well, because he was way back. But there's an. This is grammatically not correct, right? Not even in English. Before Abraham was, I was is grammatically correct in the Greek and in, in English, right? Whatever language we're speaking. But Jesus says something different. And I don't think he's just speaking incorrect Greek, right? Well, he's actually probably would have said this in the Aramaic. But the, the point is, Jesus focuses in and says, I am. Now, if this was isolated, we'd just be like, I'm not sure what that's about. But we look at all the rest of the gospel, and there's many more than these. And we hear again and again, I am, I am. So before Abraham was... I am. I am means, Jesus is saying, God revealed himself to Moses as I am. Guess what? I am too. I am too. And I was just reading this this morning. Go over to um, John 18. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Garden of Gethsemane Jesus um, is waiting, and I don't know how I've never known this before. This is just a total side thing. Um, verse 2, um, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, the Garden of Gethsemane, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. I don't know how I've never read that before. I have, but I, like it's never like, clicked. I was like, what? They've been there before? Of course they've been there before. But it was shocking to me. Anyways, that's not the main point. The main point is down in verse 5. For four and five, so they they come the 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 soldiers, the chief priests, the Pharisees. They come, and then Jesus comes forward and asks them, "Who are you looking for?" And they they answered him, "Jesus of Nazareth." And Jesus replies, "Ego Amy, whoa, I am." And if this was a normal, that's me. Okay, fine. Right? He's just saying who I am. That's kind of cool. He's not hiding. He's like, this is me. I'm ready for whatever's coming my way. But then, look at the next verse later. When Jesus said to them, Ego Amy, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. The idea is they recognized what's, what's, what he's saying here. It's not just, yep, that's me. No, 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 no. I am. I am, right? That's what I love about John. There's all those little connections throughout the whole of this gospel. Okay. Whew. Yeah. Right. Right? Yep. Absolutely. Well, that's from, yeah, it's from the Hebrew Bible. I think that's the Jeremiah or... Pre-existence. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We, it's beyond this linear time. How is it possible? You're not even yet 50 years old, but you knew Abraham? You're not even 50 years old, but... I am? How, how can you claim that? And that's what John emphasizes throughout, that, that Jesus is pre-existent. I wouldn't say that John, I don't think John, to, to uh, Ed's point, I don't think John is emphasizing pre-existence of anyone else. Although, pre, you know, I knew you in the womb. I mean, that's certainly something to, to discuss. But um, 
I don't think that's something here. Because I think the idea is even before the womb, Jesus is not just a, any other human, right? There's something beyond. Jesus was fully um, sentient and conscious and, and was already um, a being before the incarnation. He already existed prior to the incarnation. We can't claim that, right? And then there's this incipient, incipient Trinitarianism, um, right? We can, uh, I'm hoping next year we can have a, uh, a, sh- a few classes on the Trinity because I think it's a, one of the most misunderstood theologies of the church. But in a very quick nutshell, um, the, the New Testament does not fully outline the Trinity, Right? The word Trinity does not appear in the pages of the, the New Testament, neither in the Greek, nor the English, nor the Latin. Right? It's not there. But there's this idea that there are these connections between Father and Son and Spirit. And, you know, back in Matthew, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's about as much as we get from the synoptics, really clearly putting all three of them together. John goes a little further to put them together. But it's really the early church working out, how does this all make sense? And they pray, and we believe the Spirit was with them and spoke to them in the early uh, centuries. And the early church said, oh, well, we don't quite understand it. There is this mysterious relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. They're not three separate beings. They are one. So, um, but they get that they get a lot of their theology from John. Um, John insists that Jesus, excuse me, insists that he is quote in the Father and the Father is in him. And when Jesus leaves, the Spirit will replace him as quote another advocate, performing many of the identical roles he played. So, the Father, right? This is a, t- a terrible picture in some ways because we shouldn't we shouldn't imagine that we can actually portray God the Father as an old man. I don't know why. We do it, but we do. Um, the Father sends the Son into the world, right? Dies, is resurrected, and ascends. And then we get the Spirit. At least that's how Luke tells it. Um, we'll find out in a moment that we get the Spirit a little earlier than Luke and Acts tells it uh, in the Gospel of John. We'll come to that in a second. Um, and then Jesus' high priestly prayer we spoke of a little before talks about the Father and the Son's reciprocal glorification. How they glorify one another. Um, but they're not quite entirely interchangeable in function or in status. Uh, yeah, we'll skip that. Okay. So now we're going to go to... Yeah. We're going to go to John 11, but I actually don't want you to... I want you to close your Bibles. I want you to listen to the story. I want you to, maybe, maybe the most you can do is have a pen in your hand and write down a word that speaks to you or a phrase or, oh, I've never heard that that way before. Or after all that stuff that we just talked about, this thing really sticks out to me. Maybe, maybe as much as you do. But if you close your eyes, don't fall asleep. If you close your eyes, that's okay, right? And uh, you can, I draw your, encourage you to draw your attention up here as we consider the story of Lazarus. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill, and so the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after hearing, having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. 
After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. And the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death. They thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now Thomas, Thomas, who was also called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we might die with him. Not Lazarus, Jesus. Let us go, so that we might also die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them. Many of the Jews came to Martha and to Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, well, I know, I know that, it, that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, Ego Amy, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher's here. The teacher's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out, and they followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, and he was greatly disturbed in spirit, deeply moved, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, there is already a stench. He's been dead four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, and let him go. This is the gospel of the Lord. So in that rereading of this story, a story we probably all heard a few times before, as we meditate upon this icon, what strikes us? What strikes us? All about the glorification of God, absolutely. He could have healed. He could have come and healed him and, and said, oh, you're sick? Okay, now you're better. And, you know, that's it. But there's this delay, which I don't quite get. I, doesn't, I can't wrap my head around that. I know it's for God's glory, but 
That's, that's, that's still, a lot to, still a lot to swallow. What else sticks out? Yeah, that's verse 10. So in this, before Jesus even goes there, um, the, the disciples are trying to stop him from going because this Bethany is in Judea. And in the previous chapters, those in Judea are trying to kill Jesus, right? And so the, the disciples are saying, Lord, you can't go back there. They're going to kill you. And that's when we, we get that verse of uh, those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. That's before he's even, he's even left. Yeah. But the idea is that, and we'll come to, to in another minute here, there's light versus dark, right? The light is in those who believe, and the darkness is in those who don't believe, right? And that's a big theme in John's gospel as well. What I find so interesting and what I just love about this is that um, for however high and lofty uh, John's gospel is, there's this, there's this very human Christ. There's this very human Jesus, especially in this story. Right? We talk, he talks about how he's, this is a second family for him in a lot of ways. Right? These aren't just like you know, acquaintances. These are like people who loved him dearly. And... Um, they knew they could call on him when their brother was sick. And this is the only place in all the Gospels where we hear of Jesus weeping. Jesus began to weep. What? Why did he do that? Why did he do that? And I've preached this, this text a few times in sermons, or in, in funeral sermons. And uh, I'm still not quite sure exactly what I think about why Jesus wept. But he didn't weep because... Uh, well, some would say he didn't weep because, Jesus, because Lazarus was dead. That doesn't make sense. Because he knew he was going to raise him in a minute. But could he have? Could he have still mourned for that momentary separation? Or was he weeping because he was moved that this crowd was surrounding these sisters and supporting them? Or was it because they were weeping? There are so many different possibilities here. It doesn't say, and Jesus began to weep because, right? We always want the because. We don't get the because. But um, it said, Jesus began to weep. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. So the Jews are interpreting it for us. So the gospel of John, the, the writer of John doesn't say this is why he wept. It's other people around. Sure, sure, yeah. Sure. Are you sure? How do you know? Well, I don't know. So, um, there's certainly this emphasis. This is what, John is full of contradictions and extremes. Because, yes, Jesus is crying here, but he's also raising someone from the dead, right? This is something, not something that a normal human does. So, yeah. For the his, historicity of this narrative, absolutely. So the question comes, if, if this was a historical narrative, why doesn't this appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And um, I think you could, make, you could make a serious argument for perhaps this is not historical, right? If you're we're entering into the discussion of historical Jesus, what really happened, that, you could make a good case for that. That case has been made. And I think also... Um, what we'll talk about in another few minutes here is, uh, as John says at the end of his gospel, there are many other signs that happened that we could fill the whole world with books on what Jesus has done. Um, now, the other the synoptics do have stories of the raising of dead people, right? 
every one of them has a, someone comes back to life, right? Jairus' daughter, or, or there, there are stories of people coming back to life. Um, those don't appear in John, and Laz- this particular story of Lazarus doesn't appear in the others. So I don't know that you can say, that the Gospels, I think, are, are in agreement that Jesus has power to raise people from the dead. This particular story, right, this is like cinematic gold here. This whole story is really well narrated, and you could, you could picture this, right? I hope, as I read, you could picture this whole story in your mind. Um, does that mean it's less historical? I don't think so, but I don't know. Okay, we'll zoom through some other important features. Um, We've talked about these before, but just wanted to highlight again. There are two passages. Open up your Bibles to John 5, 4. Somebody want to read John chapter 5, verse 4 for me in a loud voice? Can you do it? Sure. John chapter 5, verse 4. <laughs> Are you having some trouble? Yeah. This is a game. This is it a game. is a game. Wait, wait, why? Because it's not there. What? Why isn't it there? Well, because it's not. Wait, you see three and you see five, but where's four? In, in, in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Who's got four in their Bible? It's not there. And the reason it's not there is because it's not original to the oldest texts that we have. So this is, a, this is a, one of the minor passages, just a whole verse, that is not in the oldest manuscripts we have of John. Now, if you go look in the King James Version, um, which is an older tradition, right? It's 400 plus years old now. Um, they will still have that there. But since in the last 200 years, our, our collection of manuscripts has grown, grown, grown. And because of that, we can say, this is the oldest text. That's not part of it. So this is an explanation of the healing at the pool, right? So the, the tradition was that you get, if you're the first one in the day to get down to this pool that the angel, you know, um, stirs up, then you get the healing. Well, without that, the story doesn't quite make a whole lot of sense. And if you were there, this is one of those things we talked about last week, right? Like, I live over by Glen Oak High School. To you, that makes sense. To somebody else, that's not going to make sense. Somebody from Timbuktu is going to say, I don't know what Glen Oak High School is. Same thing. As the gospel is being disseminated to the world, and they, they start telling the story. And it's like, well, I don't know what that pool is all about. So somebody comes along and writes this in. So this is a, non, this is a, this is a, a gloss, right? This is an addition to the text. It's helpful. I think it is honestly the tradition there, but it's not part of the original text. Uh, also, the pericope de, de, de Odultera from the end of 7 to uh, 8.11. We've talked about this before, but that beautiful story of, John, of Jesus, um, the woman caught in adultery coming to Jesus, and then he gets down and riding the sand, and those who without sin cast the first stone. Right? That whole story, another one, that is not original to John. There are other manuscripts that this story appears in the Gospel of Luke, like verbatim, like in Luke. Well, it's not in Luke at all. Um, and it's not in John, the original John story. And if you read around this story, there's better narrative flow in John. It actually makes more sense in Luke. Um, but the strongest tradition, you know, um, has it here in John. So we leave it here in John, realizing it's not original to the text. Does that to uh, to our point earlier, to uh, Roger's point earlier, is this is this mean that it's it's not historical? I don't know, um, but it's not part of the original text. That's all I'm I'm saying here. I think it's quite possible that it is a story that was left out of the Gospels. Right to the earlier point in John 21, there are so many other things that happened. Um, maybe somebody said, "Oh, but you left out my favorite story. I love that one." Put that back in. Could you put that back in? Let's put that back in. We already mentioned briefly, there's this strong duality throughout. Light versus darkness, life, death, God, devil, Israelite, Jews. Israelites are the good guys. Um, there's this unfortunate line um, 
while, so we talked about Matthew a few weeks ago, how Matthew is very much rooted in Judaism, but also has this tension and is against Judaism. There's uh, whatever that, that um, theme in Matthew is taken to a whole nother level in John. Um, John is much more firmly rooted, talks about all the, the holy days and the tabern- tabernacles and the festival of booths and all these things. Um, so very Jewish, but then he really does not like any Jew that doesn't believe in Jesus. And I, um, to the point that, G- that John calls Jews the children of the devil. And this is a very unfortunate line. I'm not, I'm not going to say let's question Holy Scripture and take it out, out because it's there. And we've got to wrestle with it. But what it led to and has led to, along with some of the verses in Matthew, um, it led to anti-Semitism. It led to the death of Jews many throughout the centuries. And we have to wrestle that these are the, life, the, the words of the Gospels are life-giving and also death-giving in, some, in the circumstances, particular circumstances. So these are important words, and we have to contextualize and understand these words. And what I, I understanding when John was written, we can say this is when tensions were at their peak, Right? John was probably Jewish, grew up Jewish, but then became a Christian. So he's not saying all Jews are terrible because he's a Jew. He's saying those Jewish people who don't believe in God, or Jesus as the Messiah, I should rather say, they, if they don't believe in Jesus, well, then they're children of the devil. It's still a little unfortunate because of its effects, but it's there. Uh, we talked about last week how son of God could be more of a political term, especially in the Gospel of Luke, right? Because the emperor was the son of God. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm the son of God. Um, but when we get to John, John uses it in the way we expect. John uses son of God to refer to Jesus as God's unique son. Uh, we also get... We do, get, we do get a few mentions of the Son of Man in here. It's not as common uh, in John. It's there, it's there a few times. We also get Jesus breathing, on the, breathing the Holy Spirit on the disciples. Whew. Right? After the, after the resurrection, Jesus says, Here you go. I'm going to leave soon. Whew. What? What about Pentecost? What about Acts 2? I don't know what to do with that still. Um, and then I know where our time is short here. Look for just a moment at uh, John 20, verse 30. And this is the verse I've, I've referenced a few other times. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. I'm sorry. What just happened? You just ended the gospel. It's a beautiful ending. And then we come back. We're not quite sure what to do with this. Scholars are, are, you know, throw their their hands up because they're not sure. Uh, It's very possible, similar to how Luke has multiple endings, right? Multiple potential endings because the manuscript tradition is varied. Um... It's quite possible that this was the most original ending. And it could be that John, or a follower of John, or somebody else came along and said, but you forgot the best part. Again, similar to the other stories of chapter uh, 8. You forgot the best part. And then we get this um, this whole story about Jesus uh, eating with the, the, um, the disciples, and then that great conversation with with Peter. Peter, who just denied him a few chapters earlier, to, and then he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Well, how many times did he deny? How many times did Jesus say, do you love me? Right? There's this idea that Peter is now restored. So, um, without that, without that last chapter, chapter 21, uh, it's a little Uh, it could be a little hard to reinstate and and have Peter at the head, right? The last time we hear about it, he was there at the resurrection appearances. But the last big thing we knew about was the denial. 
So is this a way to clear Peter's name? Not sure. Okay. I'm going to focus just on one thing. Well, two things here. John is much more theologized, right? There's great theology here. It's not exactly what we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not like, okay, and then he said this one thing, and then he said this one thing, right? There's a lot more, it's more thought through. It's the, whoever John was really wrote and thought about a lot of things before he wrote things down. And with that, that ego amy, that I am thing that we talked about a lot, really, this is one of the, most mind-blowing things is that in John in particular, John is saying Jesus equals Yahweh. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. So every time you see in the Old Testament, you see Lord in all caps, small caps, right? Um, we can think and we can read and say, well, that, one, that meant one thing a long time ago, pre-Jesus, but we know with a fuller revelation of who God is in Jesus, we know that's referring to Jesus. Oh, so, I hope that's a lot to chew on. <laughs> and I... Oh, hypostatic union is just the, the fancy theological phrase for Jesus is divine and human. That's really emphasized. Um, so, my, my prayer, my hope for you is that this helps in the sermon today. Um, and um, that you come back next week. Next week, we'll go through several concluding topics some more areas of exploration. There's a lot of different things we could still talk about. Um, some themes overall. We'll kind of return to reading the Gospels um, horizontally rather than vertically a little bit. And then, um, then we'll be done with the Gospels. So, the Lord go with you. Let us go to worship. <laughs>